Now let's remember that grace is the unmerited, undeserving favor, love, and kindness of God. But grace is not only something we receive from God, it is also something God wants us to share with others. Because when God's people are gracious to one another and to the lost and dying world out there, we all get a living picture, a reminder of who God is. And we all become more like our gracious God. And this pattern feeds the cycle of renewal and refreshing that comes when we receive the grace of God and share it with others. Today I want us to see a few more living portraits of grace found in Scripture. We will begin with the question of applying grace in the midst of disagreement. How many of you know that Christian spouses sometimes disagree with each other? If you don't know that, you're not married. How many of you know that Christians, Christian children disagree with their Christian parents sometimes? If you don't know that, you don't have kids. How many of you know that elders in the church sometimes have disagreements? And sometimes the deacons disagree with one another. And so that's not even a question. The real question is, how do we apply grace in the midst of a disagreement? As someone once put it, how can we disagree without being disagreeable? The Grammy Award-winning singer Tina Turner asked the question, what's love got to do with it? Y'all remember that song? And who needs a heart when a heart can be broken, she said. Right? Well, we will see what grace has to do with disagreements. So please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch where, and they were teaching the brothers. And they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting 
on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who hear my name says, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You know who the Gentiles are, right? That's us. Okay? Everybody that's not Jewish. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter, the apostles and the elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Saul. Men who have risked their lives for, this, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then they give their requirements. Now let's review this portrait of living grace that we find in this passage. Though the word grace is only mentioned here one time, we, we certainly see the evidence of God's grace at work, don't we? We saw both Jews and Gentiles being saved or converted. Nobody's ever converted without the grace of Almighty God. The work of salvation is a work of God's grace. It is not a human effort. We saw miracles performed through the grace gifts of the apostles, Barnabas, and Paul. But then we have a sharp theological disagreement, which was brought to the church by some converts from the party of the Pharisees. They were still stuck in the Jewish law mode and had a hard time understanding Christian grace. And so they wanted Christians to continue keeping some of the Jewish religious laws which were not necessary for salvation. Now, with every disagreement, we have three elements. You always have at least two parties who disagree, and then you have the object or the objective issue about which they disagree. 
So when the theological issue was raised, the two parties took it to the third party, which were the elders and the other apostles in the Jerusalem church. And then after much prayerful discussion, they made a decision, and that decision was then handed down to all the churches, and they chose a delegation to confirm the decision of the elders. God's grace provided space for disagreement, as well as the love and the unity that was necessary to discuss the issue and to come to a conclusion based on the facts from God's word. Now let's look at another living portrait of grace. Further down in this same chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we find another sharp disagreement. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. This is very interesting. Because you, if, you don't, if you've never read this passage or haven't read it recently, you've forgotten. Sometimes we forget that these leaders in the Bible, these saints, if you will, sometimes we forget that they're human beings. And they have faults and they have disagreements and they've got issues and they're, they're sinners just like all of us. But because we see them in the pages of Scripture and we see God doing incredible acts of miracles through them, we, we forget that they're humans. And I'm so glad that passages like this are here because it makes us all feel like, oh, okay, I, I can relate to these guys now. Verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, Barney, let's go back to visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barney, he's like, well, he, let's take John, also called Mark. Let's take John Mark with us. But Paul did not think this was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Now here it is, verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they what? Parted company. <gasps> Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus, Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Can you believe it? Talk about growing pains in the early church. Paul and Barnabas were best of friends and brothers in Christ. You might remember it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul when he was first converted. Before he was saved, Paul, whose name was Saul, was a Pharisee who hated Christians and persecuted them to the point of death because he thought that they were a false religion threatening to pollute Judaism. And so when Paul got saved and, and God changed his name, when, when Saul got saved and God changed his name to Paul, the churches were understandably skeptical. They were skeptical about this dude. I mean, he was breathing out threats of violence against the church. They didn't trust him, and for good reason. But Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, incidentally, he came to Paul's rescue and vouched for him. He opened the church doors to Paul and made a way for him to begin his apostolic ministry. 
But here, once again, we have a sharp disagreement between two parties, and we have an objective issue about which the two parties disagree. The two parties are best friends, Paul and Barnabas. The issue is John Mark, who happens to be the cousin of Barnabas, we're told in other passages of Scripture. On the previous mission trip, led by Paul and Barnabas, young John Mark, who was with them as a helper, he bailed. He bailed out on them and went home. He left Paul and Barnabas at a critical point in the mission, which made it all the more dangerous and difficult to complete the mission. And now it's time for another mission trip, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark, the deserter, with them. And Paul's like, nope. You got to be kidding me. We're not taking him. Dude bailed out on us last time, remember? Can you hear the argument? But Paul, he's matured some by now. I'm sure that he's learned from his mistake. Please, let's give him another chance, huh? Show some grace. Paul, no, sir. The mission is too important. We need team members that we can trust and depend on. Anybody ever been there? Now, you have two pastors, Pastor Mark, Pastor Michael. Who do you think is more like Paul, and who do you think is more like Barnabas? <laughs> let me ask a question. Let me, see, let me see if you know your pastors. Who do you think is more like Barnabas? Pastor Mark or, or me? His wife is pointing to him. I think she knows him. And who do you think is more like Paul? Oh, you don't think I'm like Barnabas? You don't think I got grace? Huh? Now let's think about this. Who was right? Paul or Barnabas? It seems to me they both had valid points. Did you notice that neither of them were corrected or condemned by God or the church? Neither of them were corrected or condemned by God or the church. So how did they solve the issue? They parted company. They didn't end their friendships, but they chose different mission team members, and instead of one mission trip, now they had two. They didn't disparage each other or gossip about each other or publicly assassinate each other's character. None of that. Like we try to do sometimes when we get hurt. Obviously, they both felt very strongly about opposite sides of the issue. They were very passionate about their position on the issue. But they didn't let that stop them from doing God's will and fulfilling the mission of the church. And did you notice what was said by the church as Paul and his new team were sent off? Look at verse 40. The brothers in the church commended Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that fascinating. Paul, who we might think in this case lacked some grace, 
was then sent out by the church to the grace of the Lord. They didn't say that about Barnabas and his team. It was said about Paul and his team, that the brothers sent them out to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating portrait of living grace. And did you notice the outcome? At least for Paul and company, we're told in verse 41, they strengthened the churches throughout Syria and Cilicia. It's incredible. See, in spite of our disagreements, God's grace results in the strengthening of the church and the spread of the gospel. It's possible. It's possible. I remember when we were making the decision to get rid of our old pews and to get these beautiful new padded cushioned chairs. It was just a couple years ago, but it was this time of year we were having our family meeting, and there were a couple people who were vehemently opposed either to getting the new chairs or to the process and how we were doing it or whatever. And there was a big fight over some chairs. It wasn't a theological issue. It was about getting rid of some old chairs that were 100 years old, splintering, squeaking, causing some of our seniors to have back issues, leg issues, and getting them some more comfort. That was it. And people were fighting over that. And some people left the church over that. They're not here right now. Can you believe it? It happens. But I pray that by God's grace, those people have found a place to worship where they can continue to serve the Lord and be a blessing to their new church family. And those of you who weren't here, you got blessed by the chairs that you're sitting in now. And you didn't have to fight about it. You just came and enjoy it. You didn't, you, you didn't know anything about the fight. But you're, thank, let me see your hand if you thank God for these comfortable chairs. You're not sitting on hardwood. Amen. Now, some of you are sleeping now because you're more comfortable doing the pastor's preaching. And uh, sometimes I wish we should have them hard chairs again. That way you, you know, you at least pay attention to when the pastor's preaching. But anyhow. And listen, in spite of our disagreement, God's grace results in the strengthening of the church and the spread of the gospel. And finally, years later, when Paul was in prison and near the end of his life and he needed some help, who did he call on? Guess. John Mark. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Look at what it says. Only Luke is with me. And Luke, by the way, wrote the book of Acts. And he says, he says to Timothy, get Mark, and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Can you believe it? How does this happen? One word, grace. Nothing but God's amazing grace. See, there's no doubt that Paul, Barnabas, and Mark each hurt each other with the words and the actions that they spoke and did, all while trying to do ministry together. But grace allowed them to forgive each other and to continue loving each other and even serving the Lord together. What about you? When someone hurts you with their words and actions, how do you respond? 
Are you able to forgive them and to continue loving them and serving alongside of them? Or are you the kind who holds grudges and becomes bitter and refuses to forgive? And all the while, God's grace is right there waiting for you to apply it to your life so you can get through the disagreement and be healed and continue to be used of God. But you resist the grace of God to hold on to your grudges. And by doing that, you think you're getting revenge on the person that hurt you. But how many of you know the sad reality is that you are punishing yourself? You are imprisoning your own self with bitterness and unforgiveness. And you may even be ruining your own health. Did you know that anger left untreated or expressed in a healthy way leads to bitterness? And bitterness, the Bible says, rots the soul. Did you know that bitterness can cause ulcers inside of your body? And it also messes up your mind, according to psychologists and psychiatrists who have studied this subject of bitterness. But if you allow God's grace to enter into your disagreements, you will learn to let go and to let God bring healing and continue to use you despite your disagreements. Look what Paul said of himself while reflecting on his life before and after Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 in the brother, of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. This is Paul speaking of himself. Last of all, Christ, the resurrected Christ, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and, to, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, but yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Mm. Do you thank God for grace? Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Grace is powerful. If we, if we could only grasp and understand the concept. If we could only reach out and let it in to our processes of thinking and to our speaking and to our living our daily lives, even in the midst of disagreements. Grace helps us to see us for who we really are, a sinner saved by grace. And when you see yourself like that, you, can, you realize that you're not better than anybody. Matter of fact, like Paul, you might say, I'm worse than all y'all. Now, God might not think that of you, but that's how you see yourself when you understand grace, that you are no, not only are you not better than anybody else, you might be the worst of the bunch. Grace gives you that humility that you need to love God and love people. Now, some of us have suffered much since we have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And I know some of your stories and I have some of my own. But even in our suffering, there is a place for God's grace. Again, listen to the Apostle Paul. 
This is another portrait of grace that we can see painted for us in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. It says, to keep me from becoming conceited, that's prideful, because of this, these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the guy that raised somebody from the dead. This is the guy that, like Jesus, touched and healed folk. This is the guy that preached the gospel, planted churches, thousands of people get saved. Probably the greatest missionary that ever walked the planet besides Jesus. And Paul recognized that he was given this infirmity. We don't know exactly what it is. And he himself prayed for himself, not once, not twice, three times. Oh God, deliver me. You've used me to heal folk, raise people from the dead. I myself have been stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, and I'm still here. Now take away this thing from me. And God looks down and says, nope. Really? Oh, it's really going to be like that? God says, in this case, I'm going to let the suffering remain so you can experience more of my grace. Now, it, it sounds great when it's happened to somebody else. But... We're not saying amen when it comes to us, are we? Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, quoting God to him. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for the for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Y'all, that's deep. That's, de I, that's deep. That's too deep for me. I don't know about y'all. Y'all may, may be more spiritual. But I don't know that I can say this like Paul said it. For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, I delight in insults, I delight in hardships, I delight in persecutions, I delight in difficulties, because when I am weak, he is strong. Whew. I need me some more grace before I can say that. Let's look at another one, Colossians chapter 4. He says, be wise in the way you act. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act to outsiders. Paul is now writing to the church in Colossae, the Colossians. And he's instructing them about how to be more gracious, how to have a more grace-filled life. He says, be wise in the way you act to outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of? There it is again. 
seasoned with salt. I don't know about you, but I like putting some salt in my food. Even before I taste it, I'm putting some salt on it, just in case. Because it's all right if it's a little more salty. It's, don't bother me. I like it even more. How many eat French fries without salt? Come on now. If you do that, something's wrong with you. You need to put salt in your French fries. In fact, McDonald's put some salt in the French fries before they even serve it to you, and then you can put some more. Let your conversation be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Listen, I'm still trying to learn how to season my conversation sometimes with salt. My wife and my children sometimes remind me. Now, we got, a, we got this a little turned around. Sometimes we say, ooh, that person was a little salty. And by that we mean they're a little nasty. In this case, salt is good. Sometimes my wife and kids remind me I need a little more salt on my conversation with them. Sometimes you all remind me that I need a little more salt in my conversation with you or maybe even in my preaching to you. We all need to learn greater wisdom and greater, have greater grace to season what we want to say. Even if it's something hard that we need to say and that has to be said, ask God to give you some grace in how to say it. Let's look at verse uh, James chapter 4. Another portrait of grace here. He says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Remember, the devil is proud. That's why he got kicked out of heaven. He's pride. So if you struggle with pride, you're more inclined to be like the devil. That's his primary trait, is pride. So God is saying, I got grace for everybody, especially those who struggle with pride. My grace is there. He wants to give us more grace because God opposes the proud. So I Satan got kicked out of heaven. He opposed him. He's, in fact, he said, you so full of yourself, there's not room enough in heaven for me and you. You got to go. And you can read about it in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Satan and a whole legion of angels were kicked out of heaven because they were leading a rebellion against God because of their pride. But God says to us in his church, his grace is available to the proud. It was not available to Satan and his angels who became demons, but it is available to us. Therefore, we are to humble ourselves so that we might then receive the grace of God. And isn't that why sometimes our disagreements end with separation and brokenness of fellowship? Is because somebody refuses to humble themselves. Nobody wants to budge. Nobody wants to say, you know what, you're right. I was wrong. Or you know what, we're both right, 
let's figure out a way how we can do it and maximize God's grace and glory in it. Like Paul and Barnabas did. We shut down and we are locked in our own ways. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. That's a position of pride. Humble yourself and he will flee from you and God will draw close to you. 1 Peter 5 and 5. Look at it again. So James says it to his church. Peter now writes it to his church. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Sometimes we have this struggle between the generations, right? The young people coming up think they know everything, and they know how to run the church, they know how to run the family, and they clash with the elders in the church because, you know, there's a misunderstanding and a different way of seeing and doing things. So you got the older generation fussing with the younger generation. That's what was going on here in Peter's church. He says, young men, in the same way, submit yourselves to those who are older. All of you, older ones and the younger ones, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, again, he says what James said, God opposes the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Let's move on and see another portrait of grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is wonderful. This is, we see grace even in our generosity or the opportunity to be generous. Some of you lack generosity because you lack this grace spoken of in 2 Corinthians 8. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this what? Grace of giving. Do you know that it's possible to excel in the grace of generosity? But some of you are so stingy. You're so stingy because you don't understand. You haven't learned to appreciate the immense measure of grace that God has poured out on you and for you. And he wants you to open up that tight grip you have on your wallet, on your purses, and be more generous. Some of you are like the, the Scrooge of Christmas. Or the Grinch that stole Christmas. Stingy. But Paul is saying here in Corinthians, learn to excel. He says, I know you've got this issue down and you're doing well over here and you're doing good in this area of your spiritual life. But in this area of giving, generosity, you need to learn to excel in this grace of giving. It goes on to say in verse 9, 2 Corinthians, and I love the way he, the apostles cause us not just to look at the problem, but to look at the source and the solution and the example. For you know, having chided them, and called them to excel in this grace of giving, he then goes on in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Wow. Just let that sink in a little bit. 
For you know, you know, all of us know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, he became poor. And he went all the way to the cross. So that in his poverty and brutality, having been crucified, having come to the earth as a little baby, born in a manger, a place where animals feed and poop and pee, he was born there. Not in a pristine, hermetically sealed Northwestern hospital, in a manger. He left the throne and the glories of heaven to be born as a helpless baby and to die as a criminal. He did that because of his grace in order that you who are poor might become rich. And knowing that, you're going to stay stingy and not share his grace with other people? Knowing all that he did for you, you mean to tell me you're just going to let that grace, just going to take it and become a container for it instead of a conduit of it? May it never be. See, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator, someone said. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so God sent us the Savior. Chuck Swindoll concludes in his book on grace. He says, on that first Christmas morning when Mary first unwrapped God's indescribable gift, grace was awakened, end quote. It's been my prayer and hope that as we have revisited this study of God's grace, we individually and collectively would be renewed by that same grace. And that's God's promise to make his grace abound in and through us. That's his promise. And I pray that his promise will come to pass at the Uptown Baptist Church. That his grace might abound in us and it might generously flow through us. I'm so proud of our church. I've, if you haven't read my email or you're not yet on our email list, you can... Put your email on the connection card, that welcome slip in your bulletin so you can get my weekly emails. But our church responded so generously and graciously. Well over $3,200, $3,300 have been given by members of our church to help our former member, Josh Reed, who had that terrible motorcycle accident and was, had to amputate a leg and has had now eight surgeries has a $25,000 goal for his medical bills, and they're now up to $21,000. And our church gave more than 10% of that amount. 
some of us have understood how to excel in this grace of giving. And other, others of us are still learning. May God's grace be patient with us and remain available to us that we might access it and apply it to our lives. God is so good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Therefore, he enables and empowers us to be good. All the time. And for us, all the time, to be good. Only by his grace. Let's stand as we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God's time to receive glory by our response to his revealed word to our hearts. Father, thank you again for your word. So powerful, so clear, crystal clear. As to the grace we have all received, one blessing after another. Oh God, help us not simply to become a container of your grace. Help us to be a conduit of your grace. Help us to be a vessel through which, out of which, you flow and pour your grace into others so that others might recognize you, that you might get the glory from our words and deeds filled with grace. that we might also grow and be edified even as we are your vessel pouring out your grace to be a blessing to so many others. God, I thank you for this sweet church. Oh, I thank you for this beautiful fellowship. And I pray that you would continue to make us more like you. In everything we do, in every word we speak, in every interaction we have with one another. May our words be seasoned with salt and may our actions reflect your amazing grace in all we do. Father, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.